You are listening to Girl Speak, a podcast series all about art, history, and contemporary culture with a girl's eye view. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 48 of Girl Speak Incredible Queens 2. I'm Tiffany Rhodes, program developer with Girl Museum. Thanks for tuning in, downloading, or streaming us today. Girl Speak is produced by Girl Museum, the first and only museum in the world dedicated to celebrating girlhood. Girl Museum explores the art, history, and culture of girls around the world in the past and present. All of our programs are volunteer-run and supported by listeners like you. Visit us on the web at www.girlmuseum.org. Today, we're going to talk about three incredible queens all of them named Matilda. Now, don't worry, I'll try to make this as clear as possible. Medieval times were full of individuals who had very similar names, but their different titles help us figure out who's who. Also, unlike our last Incredible Queens episode, there aren't as many artifacts or pictures of these three Matildas, likely due to their intense stories and very conflict-filled lives. The images you will see during this podcast are the best I could find in representing them, though many come from artists of the Victorian period or modern times. Now, the other interesting thing here is that all three of these Matildas were, in some way, related to one another. Now, you may be thinking, no big deal. Most royals in the medieval period were probably related. And in some cases, you may be right. The family trees during this period were huge and often intersected with one another. But luckily, in this case, the relationships are quite clear and quite interesting. Because at some point in each of their lives, these three Matildas were queens, or would-be queens, of England, and all within a 200-year time span. The three Matildas that I'd like to introduce you to are Matilda of Flanders, Matilda of Bologna, and the Empress Matilda, who was more commonly called Maud. The first, Matilda of Flanders, was born in 1031. She was the daughter of the Count of Flanders and his French wife and her bloodlines made her connected to many famous royal families of Europe, including being a descendant of Charlemagne, a very famous medieval king. Matilda of Flanders was extremely well-educated for her day, and also said to be very beautiful, with refined, delicate features, a well-set head, and a graceful figure. As a young girl, she spent much of her time in Lyle, a town built by her father in northern France. By her late teens, Matilda was a very eligible bachelorette. She was wealthy, beautiful, and smart. And she would catch the eye of someone very important, William of Normandy, the bastard son of the current Duke of Normandy. Now, you may be thinking, why would a bastard son ever strive for a woman of Matilda's standing? You'd be right to question, just as Matilda and her father did. William sent a representative to ask for Matilda's hand in marriage, but Matilda responded that she was too high-born to consider marrying a bastard, who she thought had no future. In response, William rode from his home in Normandy to Bruges, where Matilda was staying. Now, there are conflicting accounts here. Some say they met while Matilda was on her way to church, and others say that he stormed into her house. Either way, William dragged Matilda off by her long braids and threw her down to the ground, 
where he beat her. Everyone who heard of the incident, including Matilda's father, was furious. Except Matilda. From that moment on, Matilda refused to marry anyone but William. When her father asked her why, she stated, Because I did not know the Duke then so well as I do now. For he must be a man of great courage and high daring, who could venture to come and beat me in my father's place. No one could understand her reasoning, and even the Pope was brought in on the matter. The Pope issued a papal ban on the marriage, stating that they were too closely related. But none of it mattered to Matilda. In 1051, at the age of 21, she married William of Normandy, who was then 25. And despite everyone's reservations, Matilda and William would go on to have a very successful and happy marriage. In fact, it was so happy that William was completely faithful to her, never having any bastard children, a huge rarity among royal marriages, and contemporary accounts state that they held each other in high respect and esteem. Together they would have nine children, two of whom would become kings, and all of whom were very well educated. Yet, this wasn't what made Matilda a very fascinating woman. She also played a huge role in her husband's endeavors. But to understand what happened, we have to set the scene. It is 1054, and the King of England, Edward, has died without an heir. The English throne is entirely up for grabs, and William sees an opportunity. William was related to Edward through Edward's mother and thus he believes that he should be rightful king of England. Despite all his efforts, though, a man named Harold is crowned king, and William decides to go to war for the throne. Matilda's role in this war is huge. Women during the medieval period often ran their husbands' homes and businesses when the men were away fighting, and Matilda was no different. In fact, she ran the entirety of Normandy throughout the war, successfully guiding their duchy in the name of her then 14-year-old son. Charters and legal documents from the period show us that she administered judgment in courts and used her wealth to endow religious communities. She also used her own funds to build a ship, the Mora, which she gave to her husband. It had been outfitted with an effigy of their youngest son, holding a trumpet, bow, and arrow, pointed towards England, as its figurehead. Now, it really shows you how much they loved one another, because William chose to use the Mora as his flagship. In 1066, William of Normandy went down in history when he conquered England and became known as William the Conqueror. Two years later, on May 11th of 1068, Matilda was crowned Queen of England. Now, being queen is a big deal, but Matilda? <laughs> she took it two steps further. First, during her coronation, the language was changed to state that the queen was divinely placed by God, shares in royal power, and blesses her people by her power and virtue. This is huge, because it gave Matilda enormous power as queen, fitting her as a co-ruler rather than simply the king's wife. Second, Matilda was only four feet two inches tall at the time of her death, making her England's smallest queen. Matilda wouldn't spend very much time in England. William stayed to conquer lesser rebellions against his rule, but she returned to Normandy, where she spent her time governing their homeland, supporting her family's interests, and sponsoring many ecclesiastical houses.
she would also become part of a historical mystery. William's campaigns of 1066 are commemorated in one of the most famous medieval tapestries that still exist, the Bayou Tapestry. This huge work of art depicts 58 scenes about William's progress to the throne, and is called in French the Tapestry of Queen Matilda. Though many historians no longer believe that Matilda played a role in its creation, some say the name of the tapestry says it all. Matilda lived to the age of 52, dying in 1082. It is said that William sank into a deep depression upon her death, becoming tyrannical in his rule and refusing to take part in his favorite things, like hunting. He died only four years later, heartbroken over the loss of his beloved Matilda. Now, this is where her story joins in with other Matildas. First, Matilda of Flanders was related to Matilda of Scotland, also known as Edith. She was first her godmother, a tale that I recounted in the first episode of Incredible Queens, and second, her mother-in-law, after Edith married Matilda of Flanders' son, Henry I. Now, we have two more Matildas to add to this mix. Matilda of Bologna, and the Empress Matilda, also known as Maud. Now, Matilda of Bologna is actually quite easy. She's only related because she is the Empress Maud's first cousin. But Empress Maud is directly related to Matilda of Flanders. She's her granddaughter. So we're talking about four Matildas, all in some way related to one another and having occupied, or at least tried to occupy, the same throne. Talk about crazy. Now, remember that Matilda of Flanders died in 1082. We're going to now skip ahead about 30 years to 1105, when Matilda of Bologna is born. Matilda of Bologna was the daughter of a count and his wife, a princess of Scotland. She was educated at the convents of Wilton and Romsey, and was said to be not very pretty, but what she lacked in beauty she made up for in charm and intellect. She was also insanely wealthy, since she was an only child, making her the heir to all of Bologna. At the age of 20, Matilda of Bologna married Stephen of Blois, who was also a count, and together they became joint rulers of her homeland. For ten years they seemed to have been pretty happy, having three sons and two daughters. But after ten years of marriage, in 1135, King Henry I of England died. Now, Henry had a daughter, the Empress Maud, who was to inherit the throne. But Stephen decided to beat her to it, and Stephen and Matilda became King and Queen of England in March 1136. They took up residence at Oxford for their summer court, of which was later said, Never was there one to exceed it in numbers, in greatness, in gold, silver, gems, costume, and in all manner of entertainments. It is during their summer court that we learn a little bit more about their intimate lives, as chroniclers state that they were the ideal medieval couple. Stephen was the brave, handsome warrior devoted to chivalry, while Matilda was the dignified, tactful, gracious, and intelligent queen, and both were insanely faithful to one another. They also supported many religious sects. As noted by Gareth Russell, a medieval historian, novelist, and blogger, they co-funded the foundation of monasteries and nunneries linked to new, radical continental religious orders. 
They gave generously to both the Cluniac and Cistercians orders, and helped fund the import of the Savignac religious movement to England, paying for the intensely strict monastic sect to establish monasteries in Essex, Lancashire, and Devon. Independently of her husband, the Queen regularly went on religious retreat to Holy Trinity Aldgate, which had been founded by her late godmother and aunt, Matilda of Scotland, in the heart of London. She was also an enthusiastic patron of the Templar Knights, a group of warrior monks who protected and partly financed the goals of the Crusades. Inspired by their mission statement, Matilda paid for the foundation of temples for the Order in Essex and Oxfordshire, during which time she struck up a close friendship with the Templar's Grand Master. So, it seems that Matilda had a fairly happy and busy life with Stephen. That is, until war broke out. Now, this is the point where we have to kind of leave Matilda of Bologna for a while, and turn back to our final Matilda, the Empress known as Maud. Now, Maud had been born in 1102, so her and Matilda of Bologna were very close in age. They were also first cousins. Maud had been the daughter of King Henry I of England, but little is known of her early life. Many historians suspect she spent much of her time at the court of her mother, living amongst her noble uncles and other relatives. When Maud was only seven years old, she was betrothed to the King Henry V of the Romans, who lived in Germany. Despite her young age, or perhaps because of it, Maud was shipped off to live in Germany. At the young age of eight, she was crowned Queen of the Romans, a stark contrast to her husband, who was already 24 years old. Maud was placed in the custody of Archbishop Bruno of Trier, who educated her in German culture, manners, and government. This was a very high-status marriage, uniting the English royalty with one of the most prestigious dynasties in Europe. Over the next four years, Maud learned everything to do with her new role as queen, and married Henry when she was just twelve. Soon after their marriage, and while Maud was still very young, political unrest broke out, with rebellions against the king. Eventually, King Henry was excommunicated by the Pope, a move that forced Henry and Maud to march across the Alps to Italy in order to settle the matter. Fearful of Henry's armies, the Pope fled Rome, leaving it wide open for Henry and Maud to settle in. And settle in they did. By this time, we know Maud was already playing a large public role in government, administering grants, dealing with petitioners, and taking part in ceremonies. Upon reaching Rome, she and Henry had themselves crowned Emperor and Empress by a papal envoy at St. Peter's Basilica. Despite later controversies surrounding this title, Maud was to use the title of Empress throughout her life. When Maud was 16, Henry left her again to settle rebellions back in Germany, leaving Maud as regent over their conquered Italian domains. Up till now, the couple had remained entirely childless, and many chroniclers blame this lack of heirs on Henry's sins against the church. The truth is a bit more logical. Maud and Henry had married when she was only 12, and though it is highly likely that they were sexually active during her teens, they probably didn't have that much time together since they were campaigning across Italy and now Germany. They were reunited f around four years later, but despite the happy reunion, it wouldn't last long. Henry was stricken with cancer, 
and died only three short years later in 1125. Maud, being childless, was now left under the protection of Henry's nephew and heir, Frederick. She was only twenty-three years old, and faced with a tough decision about her future. Though marriages were proposed to her, she decided to return to her home of Normandy, departing with her personal collection of jewels, her imperial regalia, two of Henry's crowns, and the valuable relic of the hand of St. James the Apostle. But all would not be so simple for Maud. Her father, the King of England, was desperate for a male heir. Maud's brother had been killed during one perhaps very drunken night at sea crossing the English Channel. Rules of succession were uncertain, with some dictating primogeniture, where the eldest son inherits, and other areas still allowing the king to crown his own successor during his lifetime. England was also in a bit of a precarious position, because all of the previous few kings had achieved rule through conquest rather than peaceful succession. King Henry, seeking to secure a stable transition to a male heir, had taken a second wife, but to no avail. So now he turned to his surviving daughter, Maud. Only a year after losing her husband, Maud was declared her father's successor, and many Anglo-Norman barons swore to recognize her in the event of her father's death. Her father also secured a new husband for Maud in Geoffrey of Anjou, the eldest son of a count. Maud wasn't very happy with this. She found that her status was diminished, since she was now an empress marrying a count. She was also older than Geoffrey, by twelve years. Eventually, she agreed to the match, and Geoffrey inherited his domains as count and was knighted by King Henry. Despite all the maneuverings and hopes, the marriage wasn't happy. They didn't like each other very much, and there was debate over when the couple would take possession of Maud's dowry, which consisted of many castles in Normandy. Soon after marrying, Maud was so fed up that she left Geoffrey, and it was only a few years later that she agreed to return at her father's request. Maud did, however, give Henry what he most wanted, a grandson to inherit his throne. She also, for good measure, gave him a second son, though she almost died during childbirth. Now, by this time, there was still huge fighting over Maud's dowry, which would have ensured her political power. But before any resolution could happen, Maud's father died, leaving the English throne empty. Whatever the king's desires, King Henry I died in 1135, and Stephen of Blois took the throne. Now, to set a clear stage, we're at the intersection of our two Matildas. One, Matilda of Bologna, sits as queen on the English throne next to her happy husband Stephen, and presiding over one of the most glittering and beautiful courts ever said to have existed. But all is not as it seems, since Stephen is battling both Scottish invasions in the north and invasions in Normandy. Matilda has played an active role helping to administer England's affairs while also calling her own troops from Bologna and Flanders to protect England. In 1139, she was the chief architect of a treaty with David of Scotland that restored peace and ended David's support of Stephen's rival, the Empress Maud. The other, Empress Maud, sits holding her title of Empress and her jewels, having borne now three sons to a man she doesn't really like, 
and having known oaths of allegiance that proved false when Stephen took the throne from her. She operates out of the border between Anjou and Normandy, securing knights on estates and gathering her forces and political support. Over the five years after her father's death, she continues gathering support and eventually returns to English soil, taking shelter at the home of her stepmother, Arundel Castle. At this point, their stories fully intersect. Stephen eventually grew fed up with the support Maud had gained from her stepmother, who was Dowager Queen. He insisted that Maud leave and offered her safe passage out of England. But in letting her loose, Stephen loosened his greatest threat. Maud was no fool, and she immediately set to gathering support and forces, seizing control of southern marshes and the entire Severn Valley. Minor rebellions broke out in her favor, including an attack on the city of Gloucester. Seeking to end the conflict, Queen Matilda went to negotiate with Maud in Bath. But Matilda was thwarted by her own husband, who refused to make peace and made several political moves that ultimately threw the rebellion out of control. In 1141, it all came to a head at the Battle of Lincoln, where Stephen was knocked unconscious and taken prisoner by Maud's supporters. Queen Matilda was devastated when she heard the king had been captured. Maud, on the other hand, was ecstatic, having captured her enemy. Maud took her prisoner to Oxford, the first seat of his power, and made a huge military display of might. She then went to Winchester, where Queen Matilda's messengers were waiting to plea for Stephen's life. Maud all but laughed in their faces. As a result, many of Stephen's remaining supporters defected, and Queen Matilda was forced to leave the safety of the Tower of London, which was then just a fortress, with her children, trying to flee to safety in Bologna. While Queen Matilda traveled, Maud had made it to London, where she proclaimed herself the Lady of the English. She took up residence in her childhood home, reveling in a triumph that so many had thought her incapable of achieving. Here, Maud received another message from Matilda, who was seeking to ensure her daughter Eustace would still inherit her husband's estates. Maud again laughed, refusing Matilda's request in the rudest terms possible. Maud also sought to pick London clean of every penny in order to pay her supporters, and she took great pleasure in gloating over her achievements over the English people. Unfortunately for Maud, Londoners weren't going to take that lying down. On June 24th, the church bells rang backwards, a sign of open rebellion. London rose up against Empress Maud, and she was forced to flee. Queen Matilda saw her chance. Using her grace and charm, Matilda won back crucial support for her throne and was even able to capture Maud's half-brother and greatest supporter. Matilda, using her charm, used the Earl as a bargaining chip and in a great political move arranged to exchange her prisoner for her husband. The King and Queen were reunited and the Empress was running. Yet all was not well. Stephen was badly scarred mentally from his time as a hostage, and sank into a chronic depression. He relied more and more on his queen, Matilda, who struggled to cover up her husband's illness and continue running the kingdom. The fighting continued throughout this, and even the papacy in its declarations about England's throne seems to have not known which way the wind would blow. The brutal and bloody civil war dragged on, 
with Stephen constantly chasing Maud around England. Queen Matilda remained in the capital, occasionally traveling to her home to muster troops or financial support, and generally handling all the affairs of a monarch. The situation was so dire and bleak that the joke in England during the 1140s was that Christ and his saints must have decided to go to sleep, since they clearly were not answering anybody's prayers anymore. In 1147, Empress Maud returned to her husband on the continent, leaving England. For nearly two years, it seemed the war might be over, but it would continue, led on by Empress Maud's son, Henry. Yet we'll leave this conflict now, as Henry's affairs are not our concern. What we care about is what happened to Matilda and Maud. The Empress Maud spent the rest of her life in Normandy. She acted as her son's representative and presided over government of the duchy, especially after her husband's death in 1151. She also helped deal with several diplomatic crises, serving as an advisor to crises in Germany and France. She died in 1167, with her remaining wealth given to the church. Her epitaph stated, Great by birth, greater by marriage, greatest in her offspring. Here lies Matilda, the daughter, wife, and mother of Henry. The Empress's exploits would be told again and again in the many years after her death, including debates by Tudor scholars on her succession and many discussions of her character. As for Queen Matilda, originally Matilda of Bologna, she took time off at Headingham Castle, the home of her close friend the Countess of Oxford. There, while enjoying the spring weather, Matilda's health collapsed, and she died on May 3, 1152. In the end, all their maneuverings had been for nearly nothing. Stephen and Matilda's son and heir died only fourteen months after his mother, leaving the Empress Maud's son Henry as the sole heir to the throne of England. Three months after his son's death, Stephen signed the Winchester Agreement. In it, Henry was recognized as sole heir, and Stephen was granted the right to hold the crown until his death, which came only eleven months later. Whatever their ends, their lives were truly incredible. Matilda of Flanders oversaw her husband's success in rising from bastard status to conquer England and go down in history as one of the most well-known English monarchs. Matilda of Bologna would support her husband's efforts to take the English throne as well, though they were ultimately unsuccessful in securing the reign beyond their own lifetimes. An Empress Matilda, who was William the Conqueror and Matilda of Flanders' granddaughter, and therefore rightful heir, spent a lifetime conquering lands, only to never actually be crowned queen of her home country. These three Matildas were fascinating women. Their lives proved that medieval women, especially medieval queens, weren't all glittering gowns and jewels, dancing and feasting. They were intelligent, politically astute women who used their power to accomplish many things. And they stood apart from many women of their time, and perhaps even many women throughout history. In no other period have I seen such immense complexity in Queen's stories and lives, and I continue to discover new ones with every book I read. All in all, they prove one of my favorite quotes about Queen's, as stated by Lisa Hilton. Though there is ample, touching, funny evidence of the humanity of medieval Queen's, it is essential to remember that they were isolated, as well as elevated, by consecration. They were unique, they were sacred, 
they were magical. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. Be sure to tune in to our next podcast on December 30th, where we will round up the latest girl-related news. Also, please help to support future production of Girlspeak by visiting our Podbean site at girlmuseum.podbean.com and clicking Support Girlspeak. Thank you, and have a wonderful day. If you like hearing a fresh, girl-positive perspective on the internet, please support us with a tax-deductible donation easily made on our website. Our music is courtesy of up-and-coming artist Han Av. You can find her SoundCloud link on our website.